uh, Paul to the Ephesian church, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is God's good word for us. Thanks be to God. So we're starting a new preaching series today. Uh, It'll be kind of different from our usual pattern of working through a book of the Bible. Uh, Instead, we're going to focus on some key themes across multiple passages of Scripture. And here's what we're up to in this uh, Who We Are series. We're attempting to articulate the big things that our church is about. You might say our vision and values. If you were here around this time last year, uh, you remember that one of the next steps for us as a church that came out of the Vine Project evaluation process was to possibly rework our mission statement and to clarify our key values as a church. And speaking of that, while while I'm on that, uh, George and Kat mentioned this, but don't forget about the survey that I sent out this past week. If you remember, you should have gotten my email uh, with a survey in there. Please take some time to fill that out. I'll send it again if you missed it the first time. And then I hope you can make it the evening of November 12th for the Vine Project meeting. Craig Glassick uh, will be with us, and he's from Australia, and he's a cool cool accent. So you at least want to come for that. Um, But how this is going to work today is I'll unveil and explain the new, a new proposed mission statement for our church. In just a minute, I want to build some suspense first. Like, you, you can't just get that right out of the gate. Uh, and then the plan is to do a, a different sermon on each aspect of that statement over the next few weeks. After which, we will vote as a church on, at our December 5th budget approval meeting whether or not we want to adopt this as a new mission statement or not. So I'm gonna propose this, but ultimately you all get to decide. And um, two things I should say on that. First of all, however we vote on whether to adopt this this thing as our new mission statement or not, um, it's all good. Our mission is not changing, first of all. Um, The mission statement might. And when it comes to mission statements, they are great and they are helpful, but they're not the gospel. Uh, Leadership books will tell you that it's absolutely necessary to nail your mission statement and never deviate from it. Uh, But to be fair, I think mission statements are somewhat of a modern invention that started in the 1940s with military usage. It got dragged into economics and civilian life through a journal until in the 1980s when every uh, organization, business, and Boy Scout troop felt the need to adopt uh, a mission statement. I'm not sure that the early churches, you know, had mission statements. If they did, it'd be great to come up with some, like for Philippi, the happy church, you know, um, or Galatia. Uh, you know, it's, we all got circumcised for no good reason, uh, but at least we can eat bacon again, so that's good, you know. Um, or Corinth, I don't, I'm not even going to try one for Corinth. They had, if you read the the letters, they had some problems. But that said, mission statements can still be a really useful thing. And as it turns out, they're also insanely difficult to write because they force you to think really hard about what the center of the target is for you and what we are here for, who we are. 
the second thing that I'd like to say about all this is that if you're not a member here or perhaps not even a Christian, I still hope this series can be of great help to you just because maybe it peels back some layers and helps us be really direct with what we're about as a church. And you can get to see for yourself, you know, some of our intentions and our motivations and you get to hear our heart a bit better. So I, I hope it still helps you. So uh, for many, many years, North Wake has operated with this mission statement. The mission of North Wake Church is, and some of you know this by heart because you've done the new members class and Rob drilled it into you, uh, to reach the lost and equip them to join with us in the process of becoming mature and ministering worshipers of God. And then usually we go on to define mature and ministering worshipers of God as people who are growing in three crucial relationships with God in worship, with one another in community, and with the lost in witness. We sometimes talk about those three crucial relationships as three great loves, the three great loves of North Wake, God, one another, the church, and the lost, neighbor. Now, obviously there is nothing terribly wrong with this mission statement, and if you want to keep it the same, you sure can. Show up and vote on December 5th. Uh, it's a strong statement on evangelism and discipleship and worship, and it's very, very good. So why tinker with it, man, you know? Well, a few reasons. First, we want to explicitly mention Jesus Christ. Especially in 2023, uh, I think you have to be really clear about which God you are worshiping. And the way that Christians know God and what he's like is most clearly through his son, Jesus, the exact image of the Father. Uh, further, we want to be able to get at the good news or the gospel of God's love for us in Jesus straight away in the, in the mission statement and show how all we do as a church flows from that. There's a flow of love, which you'll see in a second. And then also, we wanted to simplify a bit, make it a little more memorable using words that, uh, phrases that could be more easily understood by an outsider or a non-Christian or a new Christian. And then last, we wanted to try to take those three great loves that I mentioned and smash them up into the mission statement itself to make everything a little more uh, compact and directly. So, with those reasons in mind, here's the new statement that we're proposing. North Wake Church exists to know the love of God in Jesus Christ, to grow in love for one another, and to go in love to our neighbors near and far. So, now that's new, something to think about, but we're going to break this uh, vision statement up over the next few weeks, and then we'll talk about some of the key values for our church that flow from kind of each line or phrase of that statement. And if any of you have, you know, some feedback, some gracious feedback that you'd like to give on the new statement or any of the values that you hear preached on, uh, maybe you could bring that to our November a budget input meeting that happens before we vote. More info on that later. Or you can just reach out to me directly. That would be okay as well. So first, today, I want to, I get to talk about the love of God in Jesus Christ. And that's what I'm most happy to talk to you about today. And if this is all I ever got to talk about, I think I'd still be happy. Uh, so at the beginning of the year, in the very first sermon of the year, on the very first day of the year, uh, Larry preached on this Ephesians passage that I just read a few moments ago. And he said that he would be praying this passage for our church as close to daily as he could. 
And ironically, or providentially, uh, this passage was also excellently taught yesterday at Women's Day. I was not there, for the record, but I have on a good authority that it was really, really great. But right smack in the middle of the book of Ephesians, uh, after some of the most stunning chapters on gospel doctrine, what Jesus has done for us, right after those chapters, and right before some other chapters on some of the most challenging uh, statements about Christian living, gospel application, right in the middle of the book comes this beautiful prayer that the church would know the love of Christ. It's a bridge between those two things, gospel doctrine and gospel application. It's a key hinge point in the book, and it's going to be a key verse for us. Let me read it again. Paul prays, for this reason, from all the stuff he's just said in the book of Ephesians so far, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's his prayer. And I hope you hear some of the wording of the newly proposed mission statement reflected in this passage. So really, if it's anyone's fault that the statement is changing and you don't like it, you can blame Larry, uh, because he literally prayed this into fruition, I think. Um, so why, why begin like this, though? Northwake Church exists to know the love of God in Jesus Christ. Why not just get straight to the action? You know, why not say the mission of Northwake Church is to love God, love church, and love neighbor? That'd be shorter, and it would be true. But it would be incomplete because we don't just exist as a church to get better at the stuff that Christians should be doing, though that's part of it. We also exist to be loved by God, to know the love of Christ, to so enjoy and be changed by the love of God for us, even when we're not so great at loving him. That's kind of the very heart of Christianity. He loved us first. As 1 John puts it, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice, the appeasement of wrath for our sins. Now, I do fear that when I say God loves us or God loves you, uh, it kind of bounces off of us uh, like a marshmallow being thrown at you. Um, author Kelly Capek says the phrase, God loves you, often feels like that. It feels like a marshmallow just being chunked at you. You know, it's sweet and it's fluffy, but it doesn't make a whole lot of an impact. You're not even really sure if you got hit by it or not. <laughs> you hear God loves you and you think, well, yeah, of course, I, God. Yeah. I know he's supposed to love us. That's part of his job as God, right? I'm curious if that's how it feels for you to hear that God loves you just like a little marshmallow doink right off your chest. You see, this is why Paul prays that we would have the strength to comprehend 
the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ. He's saying, I want to pray that you would know this in 4D. So we're going to roam through the Bible just a bit today to help us think on these dimensions of God's love, to help us feel, to know its breadth and length and height and depth. So I want you to think on these things with me. First, how far back his love goes. Second, how far his love would go. And third, how far his love will go. How far back his love goes, how far his love would go, and how far his love will go. So first, how far back the love of God in Jesus Christ goes. So the first thing you have to realize when you're talking about the love of God is that for the Christian God and only for the Christian understanding of God is that love has always existed. Only for the Christian understanding of God. Because in the Christian understanding of God, God is a complex being. One God, three persons. Thankfully, the student interns figured that out for us this year, so I'm looking forward to hearing their their explanation of the Trinity. But we believe in one God, three persons, that has eternally existed in self-giving, infinite love. What was God doing before the world was made? Before he was here? I know my six, seven-year-old son has asked that question before. What was God doing before he made everything? There's only maybe one or two passages in the Bible that give you some indication as to what God was up to in eternity past. But one of the, the clearest ones that we get tells you this. John 17, 24, in one of Jesus' prayers. He says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. What was God doing before the world was here? He was loving. He was a father loving his son through the Spirit and a son loving his father through the Spirit. That's what he was doing. He didn't need to create anything in order to rule it or to have something to love. He already had love. So he created as an expression or an expansion of that love. Now, I just think this is the coolest thing ever, honestly. That what you have in the Christian faith at the bottom of everything, at the bottom of all reality, is not a purposeless void of eternal matter or a sterile random universe as you would with atheism or if there, if there was no God. And you don't even have simply a God of strength and power as if you would if there was just a singular eternal person. No. In the Christian version of reality, which I think is the real version, is the only version that says the ultimate reality in the universe was and is a personal God of love. Because you must have persons to love, right? God loves because he's personal. It's not just there's like an impersonal, emotive force of love that's always existed. We don't believe love is God. We believe God is love. Before he was creating and ruling and judging, he was loving. The book of Ephesians begins by giving us another one of those things that God was up to before the world began. See if it sounds familiar. Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved Christ. What else was God up to before the world was made? (laughs) He was loving us. He was choosing us. He was planning to adopt us in Christ. How could he do that before the foundation of the world? Why would he do that? Because even then, and even there, as far back as you can go, he had love. He was love. Uh, Cornelius uh, Plantinga says, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit glorify each other. At the center of the universe, this is what I'm trying to say, self-giving love is the dynamic currency of the Trinitarian life of God. (laughs) In constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the other. He kind of makes it sound like the life of God The Trinity is a dance with each person encircling and enveloping the other, revolving around the other, glorifying each other, which is kind of what a dance is by nature, right? In a dance, you don't stand still in the middle of the floor and ask everyone else on the dance floor to revolve around you, unless you're just really vain, I guess. Um, You take turns. You do-si-do, right? You move around. When we say God loves you, that means he's invited you into the dance of love that he has shared within himself for all eternity. It's a big invite. And yet his love goes deeper still because the fact is we all refused the invite to the dance. And in one way or another, we did decide to hold totally still and to ask God and the world and everyone else to revolve around us. Our needs, our interests, our well-being, me, above loving God and others. We've refused to dance around God and each other. And this is what the Bible calls our sin. We've left the dance floor altogether pretty much. But this is how far God's love would go. Uh, perhaps, perhaps the next most famous passage in the book of Ephesians comes from the second chapter. This may sound familiar. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is the next background layer of love that you need to know, to know the love of God. It's more of the backstory that gives weight to his love. So if I told you that this lady, uh, Mary Johnson, 
lives next door to this young man, O'Shea Israel, and that Mary looks out for O'Shea. She checks on him. She makes him meals, and that he looks out for her. He takes out her trash. He helps her around the house. If I were to tell you that they look out for each other, that she loves him and he loves her, you would say, oh, well, that is nice. That sounds like a very sweet, neighborly relationship. How lovely. But what if I were to tell you their backstory? What if I were to tell you that in, in an altercation several years before this photo, O'Shea shot and killed Mary's only son. As a teenager in Minneapolis, O'Shea was involved with gangs and drugs. And one night at a party when he was 16 years old, he got into a fight with Laramian Bird, Mary's only son, and he killed him. How might that change things? Twelve years after the murder, murder, uh, Mary began to visit O'Shea in prison and just to share about her son's life. She felt the need to talk to him. And at the end of one of their prison visits, Mary hugged O'Shea and said to herself, I just hugged the man that murdered my son. And I instantly knew that all the anger and animosity, all the stuff I had in my heart for 12 years for you, I knew it was over and that I had totally forgiven you. O'Shea said, sometimes I still don't know how to take it because I haven't totally forgiven myself yet. It's something I'm still learning from you. I won't say that I've learned it yet because it's still a process that I'm going through. He was eventually released and moved right next door to Mary. And Mary Johnson says, I treat you as I would treat my own son. Does God loves you land on you like a marshmallow? Then you need to remember the backstory. Our sin caused the death of God's only son. That's what it took to bear the wrath of God so that we would no longer be children of wrath, but children of God. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He treats us like he treats his own son. You will never, ever exhaust the depth of the love of God for you if you will only stop and remember the backstory. You see now how God's love begins to carry weight, it's got dimensions to it, it is wide and long and high and deep. As Romans 5 says it, for one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is how far his love would go. This is how much it would cost. And it goes farther still. 
Let's talk about how far it will go, how far his love will go. Uh, The end of the famous Psalm 23 says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And that word for mercy is the often used, hard to fully translate, but beautiful Hebrew word for steadfast love or loving kindness, some translations render it. So the psalm says, surely your goodness and your love, your steadfast love will hunt me down, will chase me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. How far will God's love go? You see, it's not just something that existed in eternity past with the Trinity and it's not just something that happened on a cross 2,000 years ago. It's a love that will chase you on your best days, on your worst days, to your last days. So let's just taste a sampling together of what Scripture says when you think about how long and wide and deep and high the love of God in Jesus Christ goes. Psalm 103, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. John 15, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. How much did the Father love Jesus? (laughs) That's a lot. John 17, I and them, you and me, that they may be perfectly one so the world would know that you sent me and that you, the Father, Love them even as you loved me. How much does the Father love Jesus? Isaiah 43. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. The flame shall not consume you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored. And I love you. 1 John 3, do you see what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called children of God. And so we are. Lamentations 3, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Zephaniah 3, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Beautiful picture. God loves you enough to sing over you like a father with his children or like a mother with her child. Isaiah 43, Jerusalem says, the Lord has deserted us. The Lord has forgotten us. Never. Can a mother forget her nursing child? Can she feel no love for the child she has born? (laughs) But even if that were possible, I would not forget you. See, I have written your name on the palms of my hands. 
We sang this today. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is just the sampler platter, okay? There's a lot more. On your best days, on your worst days, to your last days, the love of God in Jesus Christ is where it's at. You see, Northwake, we exist not just to do stuff for God, not just to work for Him, to make an impact on the world for Him, Yes, that's part of it. And we'll say more on that in the coming weeks. But he loved us first. And he still loves us first. And we must not forget that. So Paul says, it is then that we must know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. And I don't exactly fully know what that means, to be filled with all the fullness of God. (laughs) But I'm pretty sure it's a good thing. And the way there is to know the love of Christ, to experience it, to behold it, to receive it, and to relish it. Um, I've shared before about the Cobb uh, holiday cookie bake-off that's become an annual competition, I mean, tradition in our, in our house. Um, shockingly, I did not win the silver dipping chalice, and there is a chalice if you didn't see the picture when I showed it before. It's a goblet um, in December 2022, so I'm out for vengeance this year against my youngest sister who may have bent the rules a bit in order to win this past year, but that's not really worth bringing up in a sermon, is it? Um, <laughs> But uh, in in previous years when we did this competition, one of my other sisters, uh, she had committed to not eating any sugar for several months. Some of you may have done this, you know, health reasons. But that time frame included the holidays. And my mind was just blown that she would not take a break for the holidays. Like, how do you give up sugar over Christmas? So she was still there and she helped us. She helped us bake all these cookies mixed all the ingredients, she smelled the cookies too, she put them in the oven, and she did not taste a single bite. Now, being the ever helpful older brother that I am, I did everything in my power to help her take a bite. I held the cookies in front of her face, 
I may have kind of shoved him into her nose just a little bit, at which point, you know, parents still had to intervene with their adult children. Um, <laughs> but to me, it was the greatest of tragedies <laughs> to have the sweetest ingredients, the most delectable desserts of the year, and not take a single bite. Paul is praying that you would not be like that when it comes to the love of Jesus. He is praying that you will taste the love of God, to be moved by it, transformed by it. So that's our starting place for who we are. All the other loving that we do for God and for others, it finds its source and its power, and it's ultimately a response to the amazing love of God in Jesus Christ. So that's our response for today, to simply open our hands and receive, to receive the love of God in the broken body and blood of His only Son. Because the night before the cross, Christ gave us a symbol of his love that we could taste. And he invites you to taste it again today. The Lord's table is open to any and all who call upon Christ in faith for the forgiveness of their sin. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're not walking in fellowship with Christ, then please hear me though. The love of God in Christ is for you too. The table here is just a symbol of the greater substance, the true substance of love and life, Jesus Christ himself. So rather than partake in the ceremony, we invite you to partake of Christ himself by turning from your sin and, selfish, and yourself and turning to him. For any who are taking the Lord's Supper, um, as usual, if you'll use the center and the wall aisles to approach the table and the other two aisles to return to your seats. Um, I'll come up, I'll come back up here in just a moment after everyone's gotten the elements and lead us in taking the Lord's Supper together. And if you need assistance approaching the table or you don't have someone to bring the elements to you, if you'll just raise your bulletin, we'll have some folks uh, keeping an eye out for you and we'll, we'll bring those to you. So let's pray and then we will celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So Father, with Paul, we pray that by your Spirit, you would give us the ability to know the love of Christ more deeply. How wide and long and high and deep it is. We will not exhaust its depths even in eternity. But we thank you that you lavish that love upon us even today. And so we come to this table once again to taste and see that you are good and that you truly love us for you would even bear our sin. May this love be everything to us. It's through Christ we pray, amen. The table is open.
And so Jesus, the night before he went to the cross, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after the meal, he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift of love.